So, uh, there was an ad around uh, when I was younger, uh, which has since had a modern remix, uh, but I'm not sure how many people would have seen it, seeing as uh, no, not many people these days watch TV with ads. It's just like stream services these days. It was produced by the Keep Australia Beautiful non-profit organisation. And the main line was... Is anybody old enough re remember? Yeah, can you sing it for me? <laughs> it came with a tune. Oh, that's a slightly different one. It might have been the same ones. But it was kind of like, do the right thing, you know. It was very preachy. And of course, the ad was communicating, uh, what the ad was communicating was that the right thing to do was to put your rubbish in the bin. And so the campaign came with stickers that were put on bins to make sure that you really got the message. When you come to a bin, you see it, do the right thing. Look, there's even a picture of a guy there who's showing, showing you what the right thing is. Take that little square white block you've got and throw it in the bin, right? Now, as Christians, that's a statement that we can broadly agree with, right? God is right, or perhaps more accurately, He is righteous, and He does the right thing. Therefore, as His children, we should also do the right thing. We should do the right thing. But that raises a few questions, doesn't it? What is the right thing? How do you do the right thing? And, and why? Why should we do the right thing? I mean, this ad just asserts it. It doesn't tell you why. I mean, it's only got 30 seconds, so. But those questions are one that we ought to consider when we think about doing the right thing. Well, James answers all three of those questions in this passage. And uh, I thought for a long time about how I could divide the passage up and slot it into headings of how, what, and why. Uh, but there's just, there's just way too much overlap between the verses and the sections and the questions. Uh, in the end, I decided that it would probably just be best for me to just walk through it and point it out along the way and for you to consider those as we look at this passage this morning. So that's what we're going to do. This morning, we're going to look at the what, the how, and the why of doing the right thing as James presents it to us in this passage. So let's begin at verse 19. <clears throat> oh, sorry, there are those questions. Verse 19. Know this, my bro beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. <clears throat> know this, my beloved brothers. Now, James has already used this term to refer to his recipients, uh, which we saw three verses ago in verse 16. My beloved brothers. And as I mentioned last week, again, the term here, the use of the, the word brothers is a generic term, and that was a normal thing in Greek. And so that's why the NIV actually translates this as brothers and sisters. It's referring to everyone. And the term beloved brothers is actually a good term for us to pause on. It's something that is used by several writers of the New Testament, but it's not really a term that we tend to use much today, except for maybe, you know, some cheesy husbands and wives. Uh, personally, I've actually been tempted to uh, use, as I've heard a, a preacher do, use it in a sermon myself, uh, even though I know that's going to sound weird. 
uh, to modern ears. Um, but I may or may not do it. Uh, anyway, I point all that out because I, I love the term because it communicates one of the fundamental attributes of our relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love. The Christians that James was writing to, much like the Corinthian church that Paul was writing to, were obviously not in the best shape. And, and there's a reason why he had to, just as Paul did, give so much instruction about what living a faithful Christian life and resisting temptation looks like. And yet, even in the midst of that, even knowing that that is the case, again, much like Paul, James, he demonstrates his love for them by calling them beloved. Beloved. The brothers and sisters that I love. Church, how can we commit to demonstrating and communicating that fundamental attribute of our relationship with one another? What are some ways that you can grow in love for your brothers and sisters? Well, in both both verses verses 16 and 19, James is giving an instruction. He is saying, do not be deceived in verse 16. And in verse 19, he says, know this. And even though the emphasis is on what James is about to say, which is why the ESV puts the colon there, know this, my beloved brothers, focus on what I'm about to say. I think the use of this language shows that James is connecting that the section that we just looked at, the one that we... um, (coughs) one that we looked at last week, uh, with this section that we are looking at. Remember, last week was all about growing in steadfastness in the face of trials and the testing of your faith and receiving a blessing for that. And that's actually something which continues here, and, and those same themes are stated again in verse 25. So even though this section, it stands on its own, this passage stands on its own, as with the rest of the book of James, there is a continuing thread through it all. What we are about to read and explore is a continuation of how God produces steadfastness and perseverance in us. So what is it that James wants us to know, beloved? He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Once again, here we see the background of the Old Testament, particularly the wisdom literature that is shaping James's words. And here, for example, uh, we see uh, some some shades, perhaps, of Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 to 2, Proverbs 17, 27, and Proverbs 14, 29, if you're taking notes. And they all give very similar instructions. The one who perseveres, The one who remains resolute in their pursuit of God is quick to hear, is slow to speak, and is slow to anger. These are truths of God's wisdom that he gave thousands of years before James, which James here now uh, says again. But why should we be like this? Well, James... He tells us, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man, the anger of people does not produce the righteousness of God. And so in these verses, we have some of the what and some of the why of doing the right thing. 
As the saying goes, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them in proportion. Listen well. Think carefully before you speak. But also, be slow to anger. I think it's interesting that James connects these three instructions together and puts them all in the one sentence. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Consider the times that you have quickly gotten angry. Everybody have a think about it. When was the last time that happened? Whether it's with a friend or with your spouse, even though, you know, surely that doesn't happen, right? Or whether it's at the person who was driving at 20 kilometers under the limit on McMillan's Road on your way here this morning. Think about that, that time when you quickly got angry after you calmed down from that and you thought more carefully about what it was that you were actually angry about. Don't you often find that your anger was actually unjustified? Whether it was because you overacted or because the situation or the person uh, that you were interacting with turned out to just be nowhere near as bad as you thought in the moment or as wrong as you thought in the moment. In more circumstances than we would like to admit, being quick to hear and slow to speak would have not produced the anger that it did. Being quick to hear and slow to speak helps us to be slow to anger. But why is being slow to anger even important? Because, verse 20, your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. I think James here, when talking about God's righteousness, is talking about the kind of moral righteousness that God expects of His people. That is, our actions that are not sinful, our actions that please God, that, that in other words, are what is right. And when I say right, I mean what is right in the eyes of God. And I say that because unless uh, you have some way of being able to know what is right, you could be very confused about that. For example, Keep Australia Beautiful, they want you to believe that putting your litter in the bin is the right thing. Hence, do the right thing. Now, most of us are going to hear that and, and think to ourselves without actually articulating it in our minds. Now, when they say that, what they mean is that it is a relatively good thing to do, right? Because, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure how many Christians would consider littering to be a sinful act. When was the last time you repented of littering? Now, now I'm sure we could have an interesting debate about whether that is something worth repenting of or not. But my point is that when I, as a Christian, tell you, another Christian, that we should do the right thing, I'm referring to the fact that we should do the right thing that God considers to be the right thing. We'll look at that more a little bit later. And so interestingly, James shows here, in line with the rest of Scripture, that, that anger itself is not necessarily sinful, but it very quickly becomes so. 
Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. In your, be angry and do not sin. He's, he's separating the two things. And Cain famously was cautioned by God to be careful with his anger in Genesis 4, verses 5 to 7. He said, sin is crouching at your door. So, Scripture teaches that God Himself has righteous anger and that it is possible for us to have the same. But because our anger is not pure and perfect like His, and it veers so quickly and so easily into sin, James, like many others in the Bible, tell us to be slow to anger. I wonder, when you get angry quickly... Is perhaps one of the reasons, more often than not, because you believe your anger to be righteous. Like a council worker dressed in high vis on the side of the road, James is holding up a big yellow sign that says slow on it. He is warning you of the wreckage ahead if you continue to speed on through. Your hasty speech and your hasty anger will not produce the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James says, therefore, in view of this, in verse 21... But we will come back to that later. For now, I want, us, I want to take us to verse 22, which is the center of the passage and the reason why our ESV Bible gives this section the title, Hearing and Doing the Word. Let's read. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Notice the way that he says that. He doesn't say, be doers of the word and not hearers. No, he says, not hearers only. And, and that's because hearing is an essential part of the Christian faith. What lies at the root of our faith is news, something which is communicated by the voice and heard with the ears, contemplated with the mind. It is good news. It is news about Jesus that we hear and that we respond to and that we believe and then we proclaim to the rest of the world. That is why Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. James's point, which is one of the, his main points throughout the whole letter, is that faith, real faith, does not stop at hearing and merely believing the word. To say that you can have one without the other is to be self-deceived. That is, you are telling yourself that you have genuine faith, but in reality, you have no faith at all. 
That is self-deception, and it is rooted in the idea that you can hear the word and that you can respond to it, but then do nothing about it. James gives us the absurd example of uh, this kind of person being like someone who looks intently at their face in the mirror and then goes away and completely forgets what they look like. I remember once when I was quite young, I watched a movie with Tom Cruise or somebody like that in it. I assume it was Tom Cruise. And for whatever reason, I must have forgotten what I looked like and thought after seeing this film that, you know, surely I must have looked like him. And so you can imagine my incredible surprise and disappointment when I went to a mirror and saw my own face and was shocked that I looked absolutely nothing like him. Now, that might seem absurd to you, but as a Filipino growing up in Australia with lots of white Australian friends, for some reason, I just thought that I must have just looked like everybody else. I'd forgotten that I didn't actually look like them or Tom Cruise. Now, if, now, if I was an adult, now, as, as a child, I'm sure you can have a little bit of sympathy for me for that, right? But if, as an adult, I had the same experience looking in a mirror and being shocked that I didn't look like that, that I'd forgotten what I looked like, you would rightly think that I had probably acquired some kind of brain injury. Right? And that's James's point. As ludicrous as it would be for somebody to forget what they look like as soon as they walk away from the mirror, having studied their own face, That is the level of ludicrous thinking that somebody who thinks they can hear the word and just simply hear it and do nothing about it is engaging in. It is self-deception. Many Roman Catholics will point to this and other parts of James to make a point. They will say that faith alone does not save you that you must do works and also, sorry, you must have faith and also do works in order to be saved. And the misstep that they take is that they put works or doing the word, as James says, as something which is necessary for salvation instead of something which is an outworking of our salvation. Or as the film American Gospel puts it, they take works and make them part of the root of salvation. In this equation, they say you need faith and you need works in order to be saved. They do that rather than saying that works are actually the fruit of salvation. Some people say that at this point, James is contradicting Paul because Paul has the reputation for being the justified by faith guy. So some will point to Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 and say, well, clearly Paul is saying a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But to try and drive a wedge between Paul and James would be to misunderstand them both. 
After all, Paul would say something extremely similar to James here in Romans 2, verse 13, using effectively the same language. You see, James's point is not contrary to Paul's. They are not uh, uh, unable to both be affirmed. He's not saying that we are justified by works of the law. That's not what James is saying. He's simply saying, as the rest of the New Testament does, that the sidecar of hearing the word is doing the word. The sidecar of true faith is doing the right thing. And so even though the motorbike has the engine, the sidecar goes wherever it goes. What happens if you remove the sidecar from the motorbike? Can it go anywhere? No, it can't. It does not have the engine. It does not have the means to take you to the destination of salvation. (coughs) Nor is it the thing that drives you to it. It is faith in Christ that produces, that, 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 uh, that grants us salvation and works are fused to that faith. This is why our artwork for this James series has the subtitle, as you might have noticed, How Real Faith Works. How Real Faith Works. The point is that real faith does not just stop at believing. Real faith manifests itself and it shows itself in a life and in the works that it produces. One of the reasons we say, uh, as Protestants, uh, why we say this is because we don't see faith as mere mental agreement with a set of certain truths. Faith doesn't just mean that we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and is now our Lord and Savior. It's not just something that we say, oh yeah, that's true, great. No, that that is truth that we now actually trust our lives in. We don't just simply agree with the truth. We now rest our whole lives upon the salvation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when a person puts their faith in Jesus, doing the word becomes a natural, expected overflow of our faith. It is not a necessary requirement of it. That's what James means when he says that if you are a hearer only and not a doer, then you are self deceived. You can't actually get to heaven on a motorbike that has no sidecar. You've misunderstood what faith truly is. What might detaching the sidecar of works from your motorbike of faith look like in your life? Perhaps you find yourself separating faith from works, separating hearing from doing. You believe your faith tells you that uh, it is trust in Jesus alone that saves you, but then you work really, really hard to prove to yourself and to others that you've done enough in order to be saved. Or perhaps you believe your faith saves you and it in no way requires any sort of change in your life. You ironically understand faith in the same way that Roman Catholics do, that it is just believing the right thing 
And then you think that such belief allows you to be more loose with, with God's uh, instruction to seek to live a godly life. Brothers and sisters, in what ways are you drawn towards misunderstanding faith? In what ways are you drawn towards thinking that faith and works, hearing and doing, don't go together? Remember, James isn't writing this to a bunch of non-Christians. He's not giving this warning to people who haven't responded to the gospel. This is a call to Christians to stand the test, to persevere in faith. And a necessary part of doing so is looking intently into God's Word. And you can look intently into it and then act like none of it has made a difference on you. And so the difference between, between the one who merely looks intently into the Word, like a mirror, and walks away and forgets, and the one who hears and does the Word is what happens after they've looked. Let's read verse 27. Sorry, 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You'll notice that James has switched his terminology here. In verses 22 and 23, he talked about the word. But now, here, he talks about the perfect law and the law of liberty. Such a terminology shift when clearly talking about the same thing. If you read through those verses, you'll see that James hasn't switched his subject suddenly. He hasn't switched what he's he's talking about. There is continuity in those verses. That indicates that James is using these words of law and word synonymously. That is, they mean the same thing. They are referring to the same uh, uh, object. When he says word, he's referring to law in this sense. This is how the Jews often talked about it. Like in Psalm 119, verses 43 to 44, as we read earlier, there was some... uh, uh, fluidity of those terms. Their understanding of the word law could actually sometimes uh, be referring to the law and commandments, the, the very you know, stipulations and rules and things that God has given that they must obey, and sometimes it would be referring to all of Scripture. We can go even further back into how James used the term in last week's passage. You might see it in your Bibles there, the word of truth And when James uh, was talking about the word of truth, he was saying that it was the word through which we receive spiritual birth. And so this makes sense of why James might call it the law of liberty, the law of freedom. You see, his first term, the perfect law, uh, that term is not so uncommon in the Bible. In Psalm 19, verse 7, that's one example (laughs) But this latter phrase, the law of liberty, that's actually unique to James. He's the only one who uses it. Now, this this might cause us some problems if it weren't for the fact that other biblical authors have talked about the law giving freedom in Christ. 
Paul in Galatians 5 is one such example. I think that James, and so I think that James, in the midst of all of this background, when he uses those terms, the perfect law and the law of liberty, he is actually making a very post Jesus statement in the choice of his words. It's because of this that I think James is actually going further in his use of the term perfect than simply what the psalmist might have meant. He means more than just the fact that God's word and his law has nothing wrong with it. Jesus said in Matthew 5:17, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." The law found its ultimate fulfillment in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the perfect law. That is the law of liberty. And so if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, thank you for joining us today. You are always welcome, always welcome to join us. And I hope you continue to join with us. And I hope you keep wondering about what it is that we are about, about what it is that, that we continue to talk about, to encourage each other in. And if you're wondering, if you're still wondering, let me tell you that what we are on about is this man, Jesus. Jesus, who was no ordinary man. The message of the gospel is that Jesus was the Son of God, sent by God to earth to fulfill His plan of redemption. You see, you and I, we deserve God's judgment for our sin. And yet God offers salvation in Jesus. Jesus came and perfectly kept the law, but also completed it and fulfilled it. And He fulfilled all that the Old Testament and the prophets prophesied and pointed to. And because of His life and His death on the cross, God now offers birth and spiritual life, new life to all who hear this news and who turn away from it and turn away, sorry, not turn away from the news, and turn away from our sin and put our trust in Jesus. And so if you haven't done that yet today already, let me urge you to do so now. And if you don't know what that involves or what it means, please come and talk to me or to one of our members sometime together today. For those of us who are Christians, when we look intently into the Word of God, we're not just looking for more rules that we can follow. We're not just looking for more uh, things to try and tick so that we can say we're in God's good books. No, what we see when we look into the Word of God is His uh, unfolding story of redemption. And so to look into the perfect law, as James says here, to, to gaze into it is to meditate on what God has done in Christ. To do, what, to do that and to persevere in it is to see how God's grace shown to us in Jesus is what fuels our fire. 
You see, to look into the law is to, is to remind ourselves and to ensure that we are not placing works in the root of salvation, but remembering that they are the fruit of salvation. It is the message of the gospel and God's grace to us in it that gives us the gas to keep going. And that means that we can persevere by grace. That it is in the reminding ourselves of that. That God enables us to keep going. This is so crucial for us to grasp. And it is so easy to let go of. And it's one of the reasons why we need to ensure we remember that as we come to verses 26 and 27. Let's read those together. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The language here would have made a Jewish Christian think of uh, images of Old Testament ceremonial purity. Those words of of, uh, pure and undefiled. It conjures up uh, mental pictures of lepers needing to stay outside the city or priests needing to cleanse themselves after touching something unclean. But in the New Testament, this kind of language is often used with a moral dimension. And that seems to be what James is talking about here. Purity and being undefiled is a moral instruction. Doing the right thing. Watching your tongue. Caring for the needy. That is pure religion. I don't know about you, but I have heard these verses many times. And most of the time when I've heard them, it's usually been in the context of somebody trying to say that doing justice, that is doing, doing good things, caring for orphans and widows, is in and of itself pure religion. You can understand why someone might think or say that. If you take verse 27 in isolation, that's basically what it says. But to do so is to miss the context and the fullness of a law that is perfected in Christ, in the gospel of grace. So often people take this verse and they apply it in the same way as the ad campaign that I mentioned. They quote it to other Christians and they say, do the right thing. Care for orphans and widows. Because if you're not, your religion is worthless. It's very easy to cast judgment upon others and say, well, if you're not doing that, you are not truly following Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I agree that we should be doing those things. Don't hear me say that that is not something we should turn our attention towards. But in the same way that right can be poorly defined and misunderstood in reference to littering, it can be done with reference to social justice. This can easily become the new legalism 
These instructions that James gives us in these verses can easily become the next root of salvation. And I think it is one of the biggest risks for a church to fall into. Now, again, please hear my heart. We must do this work. I had, I had a great conversation with Beck this week about uh, her own struggle in how best to care for a man who uh, came up to her and asked for money. We talked about how I feel the same difficulty in knowing what to do. We shared about how, how it is challenging because we don't want to just act out of guilt and we do want to act wisely and we want to make sure that we don't want to uh, use that motive to do the right thing, to act wisely and well, to be an excuse to do nothing. I hope and pray, as I, as I said before, that we would be a church that turns its, its resources and time and energy towards being God's hands and feet in, in the community and in our own church. But if we turn this into the sole or even the major defining trait of what we consider to be pure religion, then we have missed the point of what Jesus came for. He did not come to just tell us to be better people and what we can do to try and make ourselves better. If we understand these verses the way that I have just described, then our religion is the same as any other that says that you can be saved, that you can find peace and wholeness through what you do and how well you do it. And that takes us back to verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. How do we do the right thing? What do we need to do to produce the righteousness of God in our lives? James here sounds a lot like Paul and Peter and the author of Hebrews when he tells us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That verb for put away is most commonly used in the New Testament with reference to sin. How do you produce the righteousness of God? How do you hear and do? How do you do the right thing? Well, this is the first part. Put away sin. Turn away from those desires in your heart that prefer darkness to light, that prefer impurities to purity, that prefer filth to cleanliness. There is no faith without repentance. There is no obedience without first rejecting sin. But that isn't all. The second part is to receive the, with meekness the implanted word. This is uh, such a fascinating phrase. It's fascinating because James tells us that we need to receive something which is already implanted. Right? How do you receive something which has already been implanted? And not only that, No, just scrap what I was going to say there. How do you receive that? This, friends, 
is the beauty of the gospel. Scripture speaks of different components of salvation. It talks about salvation being uh, in, in, in several components. And even if Scripture doesn't use the terms uh, uniformly, uh, over the years, theologians have spoken of three main uh, terms that they have given components, uh, given names to, and two of those are seen in this very verse. You may have heard them before, justification and sanctification. Now, both of these are biblical words, and they are often used in the Bible the way that I am about to define them, but sometimes the terms are used with a broader definition. So when you see Paul using the term sanctification in 1 Corinthians and the concept is actually justification, you don't have to freak out. Right? Justification, if you are unfamiliar with it, refers to the moment a person is declared saved. They are given a new status, one that says, not guilty. In that moment, a person is born again and their hearts are turned from stone into flesh. They have heard the word of the gospel, it has found good soil, and it begins to bear fruit in their lives. In that moment, the person is considered righteous before God, pure and undefiled, not because of the reality of their lives, not because they themselves are pure and righteous, but because by turning from their faith and trusting in Jesus for salvation, His righteousness is given to them while He takes on their sin. It is, as some say, just as if I had not sinned. Justification. When we hear and we respond to the law of liberty, it is like we take off our filthy rags and we hand them to Jesus, who then hands to us a pristine, perfect, pure robe to put on. That is what happens when the Word is implanted in us. James here is referring to the word that has already been implanted in the heart of the believer. The word which has already produced right standing based on faith in Jesus. But there is still an active verb in this sentence, isn't there? That, this is where James speaks of sanctification. Sanctification is a theological term which describes God's continual work in our lives to make us more and more righteous. If a prisoner is released from prison, he really is free. But it may take a little while, if he ever gets there, to act like a free person. There may very well be many instincts Many things that he is just too used to in living as a prisoner that will take a while for him to realize he is actually free and act accordingly. So it is with salvation. When we turn away from our sin and believe in Jesus, we truly are saved. But the everyday reality may not feel like that's the case. You may notice that you still have sins that you struggle with, that you find your heart is just not as engaged with God as it seems to be with other people around you. And that's because in this life, God is working by His Spirit in molding and shaping us to be more like Christ as we grow in righteousness. This is what it means to receive with meekness that, that 
the word that has already been implanted. We receive it because it is a work of God by His Spirit. And we continue to strive in it, as the rest of this passage instructs us to do. This is what it means to receive it with meekness, the word that has already been implanted. And James can say this because the two are inseparable. Justification and sanctification happen in salvation. You cannot have one without the other. As Martin Luther apparently said, can't find the source, but maybe somebody will, There is no justification without sanctification, no forgiveness without renewal of life, no real faith from which the fruits of new obedience do not grow. The implanted word has saved us in Christ, and now it has work to do in our lives to keep making us more and more like Christ. Meekness is a term that is often used to describe the kind of attitude a Christian should have when approaching God. That is the one we ought to have, both in justification and in sanctification. It is not the same thing as being weak, that's not what it means. It is more closely related to being humble and gentle. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How? Through the word of the gospel. It is those who come before him hungry and who receive his word, who respond to what he has done, that shall inherit the earth and produce the righteousness of God in their lives. When you realize that this is the assumption that James is working from, when you realize that this is is, uh, the underlying understanding of salvation that he is writing from, then everything else he says from this point on that we've just looked at makes complete sense. His instructions to not be hearers of the word only, but to be doers of the word is an outworking of God's sanctification in our lives. It is something that he does in our lives and something that we strive for. When we see that pure and undefiled religion is that which comes out of a spiritually reborn heart, then we will no longer use it as a stick to try and beat other Christians with and tell them that they're not doing the right thing. And when we see that sanctification is something that God is doing in us, as we respond to Him by putting off filthiness and wickedness and looking intently into the gospel we will find the Holy Spirit wind in our sails that we need in order to persevere. Brothers and sisters, this is why it is so essential for us to continue to look into the Word and see the Gospel. Because without it, all you will find is more legalism. is more salvation by works. What is your struggle in hearing and doing the Word? Are you one who thinks that, you know, hey, doing a great job, 
I'm living out pure religion. All these other Christians around me, they just need to pick up their game. Are you one who receives the word in faith and in joy, but then continues to struggle with sanctification being fueled by grace, seeking to try and earn your own salvation through your works? Or are you one who is more prone to seeing God's commands to be doers of the word, to persevere as a weight that is just too heavy for you to be able to carry? Brothers and sisters, there is always a danger for us to oscillate between those two uh, wrong positions. To either be overburdened with despair at our failures and to forget the grace of God or to be legalistic in our assumptions about how well we can do religion. The perfect law, the law of liberty. It frees us from both. As you consider what it means to be a doer of the word, and as we keep exploring James, where we, were, we are going to see a lot of elaboration on what that means, don't ever forget that our salvation begins with justification and it continues in sanctification. Or to put it another way, put off filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That last line, I think, is referring to the third component of salvation, which theologians have called glorification. James says that it is able to save your souls. And he does not simply say that you, it will save your souls, because that is ultimately what is going to happen. In James, I think he uses this term mostly, if not entirely, to refer to God's final salvation. And the church has historically referred to this as glorification because it is the moment when our perfect status and the reality of our lives finally meet. The status that we have in Christ on the day He comes again will, because of His righteousness, become an, a, a real, physical, lived-out reality of our lives. Our need to persevere will cease because the perfect law will finally make us perfect in Christ. I don't know about you, but that's a mind-bender to me. I can't even imagine what it would be like to live a life without sin. And this is why James can say that we are blessed in verse 25, which some eagle-eyed observers may have noticed that I skipped over that part of before. As I mentioned at the beginning, there is a connection between this passage and the last. There is a continuing thread. And here we see one to verse 13, which I don't have on the screen, sorry. So you just have to look back in your own um, Bibles. Where James says that the one who perseveres under trial will be blessed. 
That blessing is not simply a state of happiness in having the stuff that we want. It is a state of wholeness. It is a state of completeness in Christ. And we get a glimpse of that in the here and now. But its ultimate and its perfect fulfillment will be when He comes again. The one who perseveres will be blessed in eternity. So what is the right thing? How do we do it and why? It is to look into the word of truth. To look into the perfect law. To, the, to look into the law of liberty. The gospel of grace. And to respond in meekness and in faith. And to live out that faith. And we do so because God has graciously given us Christ. And has given us His Holy Spirit, promising His salvation and blessing both here and finally and ultimately in the world to come. Brothers and sisters, doing the right thing means having a faith that has works as its fruit and not at its root. How can you grow in remaining rooted in faith and producing the fruit of works. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize our own tendency to easily to separate faith and good works in our minds, to separate grace and righteousness. Father, as we've been reminded this morning from James, reminded that your perfect law, the law of liberty, is one that grants us salvation by your grace through faith and produces obedience, produces growing righteousness. Lord, I pray that that would be truth that we never tire of. May we continue to look into your perfect word. May we continue to look into the goodness and glory of the gospel. And be transformed and changed by it. Father, I pray that we would be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.